Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Oh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome on this uh, Friday afternoon. Thank you for coming to the University of Melbourne. Uh, my name's Mark Hargraves. I'm a Pro Vice-Chancellor at the University. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we gather tonight, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to any Indigenous peoples with us this evening. I'd also like to uh, send the best wishes and apology of our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Duncan Maskell, who unfortunately, due to a prior commitment, was unable to come this evening, but he wishes you all the best for a very interesting seminar, and welcome to Professor Alan Finkel, the Chief Scientist. And he is our guest of honour and first speaker this evening. I'm sure he needs no introduction to you. He's uh, the Chief Scientist of Australia and Deputy Chair of Innovation and Science Australia. Prior to taking that role, he was the eighth Chancellor of Monash University, uh, our largest publishing partner. So despite what many think, we work very closely with Monash on a whole range of uh, activities and uh, collaborate closely and, and particularly in areas like this. Um, he was also president of the Australian Academy of Technology, Science and Engineering, um, a, an eminent scientist in his own right, an entrepreneur, an educator, uh, and very well qualified to share with us tonight his insights on uh, hydrogen. In fact, he provided advice to COAG on the potential of hydrogen as a fuel for Australia. So please join me in welcoming Professor Alan Finkel. Delighted to be here and thank you for attending. I'm just going to get straight into it and start by showing you a picture of the planet that I would like us all or our descendants to be enjoying a hundred years and a thousand years from now. In order to preserve this planet, we are going to need to do many, many things. There's no simple single solution, but one of the contributors to preserving the planet will be the transformation of energy, and within that will be the contribution of clean hydrogen, which is what I'm going to talk about. So I was delighted that two weeks ago at the meeting of the energy ministers, their vision was expressed as follows. It's worth reading that. It's unequivocal. It's support by the state Labor, the Labor state ministers, the Liberal state ministers and the coalition Commonwealth ministers of the importance of a hydrogen industry, the significance of Australia's role and the contribution to the energy emission transition and emissions reduction. So at this meeting, the hydrogen strategy was unanimously adopted just two weeks ago. What it does, it supports a hydrogen industry. It's not a lot of targets, but it's setting the framework for the hydrogen industry. To my absolute delight, all 57 of the suggested actions were adopted unanimously and with acclaim by the ministers. And then immediately afterwards, the Commonwealth Government announced $370 million of stimulus funding, so that's funding yet to be allocated but committed for future hydrogen projects. So there is some real momentum there for us to keep working with. Key to this is that this was not done by an independent panel. I was the chair of the process, but it wasn't an independent panel. It was a COAG working group, which means that all the work was done by public servants, 
from the Commonwealth and from all of the states working collaboratively together at a very senior level, and that meant that they could be briefing their heads of department and their ministers all the way through, and I, of course, went round the country briefing ministers uh, all the way through the process. That means if you look at the report, you will not see the word recommendation in there. There are no recommendations. The 57 things that were agreed were agreed strategic actions, agreed strategic actions that the ministers were already predisposed through their discussions to adopt. And it struck me afterwards, talking to people, that this could be unprecedented. I said, I think, because I haven't done the research to prove this point. But what we are seeing here is a nationally agreed strategy at the state, territory, and Commonwealth level to develop a new industry for Australia at its very dawn. They do, they do strategies from time to time to kill an industry. They do strategies from time to time to rescue an industry. But this is to build one at its dawn, so it's significant. We're here to talk about hydrogen as part of the energy equation. I thought we should just stop for a moment to say, question, how important is this? How important is energy in the context of civilization? Okay? Now, if you were to take away modern medicine, it's back a couple hundred years, back to the Renaissance. If you were to take away education, modern education, you're going to go back further, all the way to the Middle Ages. But what if you took away from our civilization the energy supply? <laughs> it's back to the Stone Age. The only person who would be happy is Dino the dinosaur. Energy is fundamental to civilization. But as we've adopted energy over the eons, the millennia, especially in recent years, it's coming with a cost. Because the energy that we use is primarily fossil fuel driven. So it comes at a cost, um, and it's, it's much bigger than you might think. If you look at global, global greenhouse emissions, nearly three quarters comes from energy. The rest comes from agriculture and the big land use and the big section called other. But nearly three quarters comes from energy. So it's, it's the sweet spot. It's where we should be attacking the problem. The solution, I think everybody here would agree, is clean electricity, to use clean electricity, whether it's solar, wind, or hydroelectricity, as our primary energy source. Electricity is electrons, and it's incredibly versatile. You can do so many things, but it's not always convenient. Sometimes you need a high-density transportable fuel, molecules. But the fuel that we want to use in future has to be a fuel that, when it's used, burned, does not produce any CO2 at all. Well, guess what it is? Hydrogen. Hydrogen in future, it might be 20, 30 or 40 years from now, estimates are will carry about 15% of the end use energy, the demand that is used across the global economy. If it's made, for, and the rest will come from electricity. If the hydrogen is made from electricity and you've got to say 50% losses making it, then of course you have to generate 115% of the electricity that you think you need, because you've got to make the hydrogen as well. But you're doing the hydrogen for convenience, not for efficiency. Where do you get it from? Well, it's interesting. If you'd been around a long time ago, like 13.7 billion years ago in the Big Bang, 
100% of all of the mass of the universe, and it was all there within a tiny, tiny fraction of, this, of a second after the Big Bang, 100% of the mass of the universe was hydrogen, ionised hydrogen. That, by the way, that's not a picture, that's an artist's impression. <laughs> but if you come to look at the universe now, at the galaxies and the billions of galaxies that comprise the universe, across the universe, it's still 94% hydrogen. The 6% that's no longer there has been upscaled. It's turned into helium and lithium and all the other heavy elements through nuclear reactions. But, so the universe is fundamentally hydrogen. But if you look on Earth, there's lots of hydrogen, but it's only about the 10th most abundant element on Earth. And it's not freely available. It's always bound up in something. Predominantly, it's bound up in the... Uh, the liquid I used to call water, but now I have a glass of H2O. So somehow we have to get the hydrogen into a gaseous form as a pure element. There are multiple ways. You can do it through fossil fuel pathways. I'm going to illustrate the renewable pathway. So you take solar, solar energy, it could be wind, solar panels and water. You put the output of the solar panels, the electricity, through a device called an electrolyzer or electrolysis unit. And you get two gases out of it. You get hydrogen that you want, and you get oxygen that you don't care about. What do you do with the oxygen? Gosh, you just let it go. There's nothing wrong with putting oxygen into the atmosphere. But the hydrogen is the product that you want. So that you metaphorically bottle. When I say bottle, it might be going to pipelines, it might be going to ships, it might be used immediately, but that's the product that we're manufacturing or producing. So why Australia? Well, all countries should be interested in using hydrogen as an alternative, but Australia's got a special interest in producing hydrogen. The World Energy Council did a report last year and they identified Australia as a potential giant in the production of hydrogen because we've got so many suitable resources. Um, we, during the development of the National Hydrogen Strategy that I'm going to tell you more about, we contracted a number of specialist reports, including one from Geoscience Australia. And they have produced an online mapping tool. And if you look for AusH2 online and Geoscience Australia, you'll find this site. And with that, anybody who's got serious interest in knowing what our resource capability is, whether it's hydroelectricity, wind or solar, or fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage, can set up all the parameters and restrict it by things such as existing electricity infrastructure or existing pipeline easements. It's a very, very powerful tool for those of you who have a professional interest. So how do we develop the strategy itself? We started by modelling some global growth scenarios. And I have to stress to you that these are not predictions of outcomes. These are just scenarios that could be a future pathway. We modelled four. I'm just showing you the two extremes here. The first one, the blue one that's going up, is for what we called hydrogen, the energy of the future. And that's the scenario where all countries are taking the need to decarbonise really seriously and hydrogen is part of the armamentarium. It's being rolled out and used very effectively to help countries to decarbonise. The green one at the bottom, which is even worse than business as usual, is not that the countries aren't seriously trying to decarbonise. They are, but hydrogen just loses out to different technologies. It might happen. We don't know. We call it electric breakthrough, that there's some other electricity-driven technologies that 
deliver the end use needs more efficiently than hydrogen. I do think that we're gonna go up the blue path, but we don't know. So those were some of our boundary conditions that informed us as we were developing the strategy. Eventually, with time, with a lot of consultation, we constructed the strategy. The vision I've effectively given you through that ministerial statement, the 57 agreed actions, I'm gonna spare you, I won't take you through any of them specifically, um, and we've got measures of success. We've got ambitions of where we want to be, and we've got ways of tracking our progress over the, the decades, because hydrogen will not be a significant contributor to the emissions reduction agenda across the planet next year. It'll start to become significant during the 20s and more so during the 2030s and clearly so during the 2040s. Uh, the strategy consists uh, fundamentally of the following. It's, it's a framework. It's not a set of targets. The Japanese strategy is driven by targets. Ours is a framework that will make it easy for developers supported by states in some cases and territories and the Commonwealth Government to develop the hydrogen industry. And the framework will make sure that the development of that industry is absolutely safe and cost effective and importantly brings benefits to all Australians. It's economic benefits, jobs, etc. It's an adaptive approach. We cannot foretell what the future is. This industry is much too early, too nascent for us to predict what we'll be doing three years, five years, and 10 years from now. So we've built in means of being very adaptive. And as I said, it's not target-driven, but that doesn't mean we don't think about where we want to be. So there are measures of success that I'll go through with you soon that will tell us if we're achieving our ambition. So it's not a roadmap because you can't do that. So in a nutshell, the major things in the hydrogen strategy. Coordination of safety is a very, very big one. Safety has to be number one. Hydrogen is a fuel. All fuels are dangerous. Petrol is dangerous. Electricity is dangerous. Medicines are dangerous. Cars are dangerous. There are lots of things in our society that we manage by having good regulations and good standards. And the industry has been around in a non-clean sense for many years, and we've got good knowledge of how to do that. We want to get coordinated approvals and consistency across the states of the rules and regulations. Demand is the big challenge. Um, in my experience, spending a year talking to people in the industry, Australians there are Australian industries and investors who are keen to build hydrogen production capability, and they could do it relatively quickly. The challenge is to build the demand that would use the hydrogens produced. There's growing efforts all around the world, but we need to do some of that domestically as well because we want to use it for its good purposes as well as building demand. And that demand can be built through hubs and transports and blending with natural gas, and I'll go through that in a bit more detail. Um, we will start a program pretty quickly to assess the hydrogen infrastructure needs, the roads, the rails, the ports and things like that to make sure that industry is well supported. And this is really important and I'll come back to it again. We're going to lead and we've been talking to international colleagues the development of a provenance scheme. How do you know that a bottle of champagne really came from champagne? The province. And how do you know that a kilogram of hydrogen that you import into Germany or California came from where you think it came from and was made the way you thought it was made? 
Um, this is not just me talking, it's not just the Commonwealth. As I said, it's all the state governments, and most of them already have initiatives in this space that feed in really quite nicely to the national hydrogen strategy. As I said, there's a focus on safety. Australia, for quite a few years, has been a member of the European Association called HiSafe, the International Association for Hydrogen Safety. Uh, two months ago, when the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, went to America, he signed us up to be a member of the American Safety Centre called the Centre for Hydrogen Safety, and that's significant, and we're working with both of those. And in September of this year, Adelaide was the host to the biennial International Safety Conference, uh, which brought people from all around the world and really helped to establish Australia um, as a partner in all aspects of hydrogen generation, including safety. Uh, gas blending is a good way to build demand and get in, uh, emissions reductions benefits. There are already three projects that have been um, commissioned, funded, and next year we'll start blending gas. What I'm talking about is take the distribution networks in a suburb and replace some of the methane, which is natural gas, with a little bit of hydrogen. And it's well known from studies that have been done in Australia and all around the world that modest amounts of hydrogen, certainly at the 10% level, are absolutely safe and will work like 100% natural gas. So these are three projects that are underway. And then straight away after the hydrogen strategy was adopted two weeks ago, the New South Wales government declared that they're setting a goal of 10% hydrogen blending into the natural gas network across the whole of the state. The momentum is building. It's terrific to see. Hubs, uh, the idea of a hub is where you've got some hydrogen generation capability, <laughs> um, some hydrogen generation capability, and in order to build up the demand, you try to co-locate a number of, or aggregate, a number of users of the hydrogen. So hydrogen generation and storage, and then that can be used through the gas distribution network in the built environment for heating and hot water. It can be used... Uh, for transport, it can be used in industrial uses. We'll talk a little bit about that, and it can be used for export. So hubs are an approach that the International Energy Agency is recommending and that the Australian governments have said, yes, we will look into this at the state and territory level and perhaps with support from the Commonwealth. But this is also an interesting opportunity for me to just clarify something. I often come across people who think of hydrogen as hydrogen versus batteries. Yes, of course, when it comes to transport, it is hydrogen electric vehicles versus battery electric vehicles, and it splits between smaller vehicles and big heavy-duty vehicles, but hydrogen is so much more than that. So the block that I just um, backgrounded there, the built environment transport, that is hydrogen as a fuel, but there are three big uses of hydrogen. Hydrogen as a fuel, industrial use, sometimes you use it as a fuel, but very much as a chemical. So the biggest single industry that is contributing to global emissions is steelmaking. Steelmaking is at least 7% of all greenhouse gas emissions. It's a stunningly large amount from one industry. And it's to a very large extent because the coal, the carbon in the coal is being used as a chemical to do, in chemical terms, what is called reduce. It's reducing the iron oxide to elemental uh, iron. So the ferrous oxide, the carbon is grabbing the oxygen atoms 
and turning into carbon dioxide. It's sacrificing itself and going off into the atmosphere. Battery can't solve that problem, but hydrogen can. Hydrogen can do exactly the same chemical reduction. Hydrogen can grab the oxygen and sacrifice itself and go off into the atmosphere as water vapor. So it's a fuel, it's a chemical, but also it's an energy carrier. It's the hydrogen and its derivatives are the only way that we can conceive of to take a resource like Australian sunshine and Australian wind and Australian hydroelectricity or fossil fuel-based hydrogen and ship it around the world to the countries that need it, like Japan. Japan is totally dependent on imported energy. 94% of its energy use comes from imported coal, oil and gas, and they want to replace that. So purchasing countries need to know what they're getting because they'll all have different criteria for acceptability. So we have proposed an international provenance scheme or certificate of origin scheme. Three things that it will cover. The first is the country of origin, Australia, in this case. The second is the production technology. Did it come from natural gas with carbon capture and storage or did it come from solar and wind? The second of the three things is the technology that was used. Was it coal with carbon capture, was it methane with carbon capture, was it solar wind, or renewable technologies. In some countries it might be nuclear. What was the technology that was used to make it? But the most important is actually the third one, which is a number, in this case zero. How many, how many kilograms of carbon dioxide were emitted during the manufacture of one kilogram of hydrogen? The unit for sale of hydrogen is always a kilogram of hydrogen. In the case of renewables, looking just at the electricity used and to, pro to process and produce the hydrogen, it would be zero. In the case of fossil fuels, it, if it's done properly with carbon capture and storage, it will be near zero. And countries will have to make their own decision as to numerically what is their definition of zero. Because one thing I have to point out to all of you, in the world of emissions, when people talk about zero emissions, it's not the mathematical definition of zero. What it really means is as near to nothing as possible. The approach we've got is adaptive. I already mentioned that. So we've got this thing that goes all the way through the uh, strategy of, of review, revise, adapt, review, revise, adapt. Let's monitor what's going on. And we'll track progress. We've specified 13 progress indicators that uh, we're creating a baseline for. And every year, there'll be a state of hydrogen in Australia report going back to the COAG Energy Ministers, and part of that report will be looking at progress against these uh, indicators. We will have an absolute focus on creating an optimum industry that's clean, innovative, safe and competitive. As I said before, benefits for all Australians, and we expect for Australia to be a major global player. Okay, some Q&As, facts, frequently asked questions. Is renewable hydrogen cost competitive? I get asked the question all the time. Well, let's look at it. The answer depends very much on the application. So let's first look at transport. The current production price of renewable hydrogen, it's all over the place. So I'm taking it somewhere at the lower end of about $6 per kilogram. Now let's imagine you have a car that runs on petrol. I'm going to compare the cost of running that car to a car that runs on hydrogen. Let's start with the petrol car. It's going to drive 100 kilometres. 
And this particular car, which is an SUV, is going to use eight litres of petrol to drive the 100 kilometres. And if the petrol price, if they're using premium, is $1.50 per litre, then that's $12 to drive 100 kilometres, okay? Hyundai makes a car called the Santa Fe, and in exactly the same body, SUV body, they're now making a hydrogen car called the Nexo. So apples and apples, except for the fuel. If the hydrogen car drives 100 kilometres, it requires about one kilogram of hydrogen to drive that same distance. So what that tells you is if you could go to a hydrogen refueling station, go to the Bowser and buy your hydrogen at a dollar per, sorry, at $12 per kilogram, your cost of driving a kilometre would be identical. If the wholesale price, the production price is $6, typically the price is going to go up two to three times by the time it gets to retail. So it might be between 12 and 18 today, which means we're in the ballpark already because it's only going to get better. And what we know in renewable technologies, it gets better pretty quickly. But let's look at different application. Let's look at Japan or Korea or Germany importing bulk hydrogen to replace their imports of bulk natural gas, LNG. If you start with a production price of still $6 per kilogram, by the time you liquefy it and put it on a liquid hydrogen carrier, liquefied hydrogen carrier, it's going to be more expensive. It might be $8 per kilogram on board. And that's where we are today in 2020. What we need to do, we know what the target is because Japan has declared that they are targeting, not today, not by 2030, but sometime in the 2040s, they want to be able to purchase bulk hydrogen at about $1.20 per kilogram. And that is a really very, very difficult target. But we've got 20 to 30 years to get there. And given the way we've seen technology and solar and wind and batteries unfold over the years, I personally have a lot of confidence that we will eventually get there. Has Australia got what it takes? Can we build a global industry from scratch? We did it with LNG. If you look at the Australian LNG exports, in 1979, the first offtake agreement was signed. It took 10 years before they shipped the first drop of LNG in 1989, and now 30 years later in 2018, we just got to the point of being the largest exporter in the world, or actually equal to Qatar. But that's been through brilliant engineering, financing, and a trusted trade relationship with the purchasing countries. Take another one that's perhaps um, of more interest to people here, the solar and wind electricity installed capacity. The first Wind farm in Australia was in 1997, it was 600 kilowatts. It was 0.6 of a megawatt. It does not show up on that scale. But over the last 21 years, uh, uh, 22 years, we've actually built up a considerable industry. But it takes time. And we're probably only about a 50th of where we need to take solar and wind if we want to replace all energy in Australia. Because don't forget, it's not just replacing electricity. We've got to replace if we want to go that direction, petrol for transport and gas for heating, coal for electricity, well, coal for electricity generation, of course. It's a big challenge, but we know we can do it. <coughs> Is the technology available? Um, I'll tell you what's not available. We don't have any liquefied hydrogen carriers 
till Wednesday of next week. I will be in Japan next week as a guest of Kawasaki Heavy Industry. They will be launching the world's first liquefied large, large hydrogen carrier. Very exciting. This guy down there, that's a fuel cell. Fuel cells are how not all but maybe half or more of hydrogen will be used. A fuel cell converts the hydrogen back into electricity to run your car or your truck or your ship or in Japan or Korea to just generate electricity. And over the years, they've gotten smaller, cheaper, lighter, and more importantly, they've become reliable. One of my favorites is the unsung hero. Does anybody recognize that? It's a fuel tank. That is a, car a cutaway of a carbon fiber hydrogen fuel tank. It's made out of 3,000 layers of carbon fiber, and it can hold 700 atmospheres of pressure. That's the pressure that you would feel if you were scuba diving seven kilometers down in a Pacific Ocean trench. It's a massive pressure, and that's what's in the cars that are shipping today. You can drive over those with a truck, you could shoot them with a bazooka, they don't fail. And the last one I'm mentioning, this is just a selection, is technology from the CSIRO. It's tubing made out of vanadium that can be used to, if, if you ship the hydrogen not as liquefied hydrogen, but by first chemically converting it to ammonia, at the other end you've got to convert it back into hydrogen. And it's difficult. And this technology is potentially breakthrough. We don't know yet, but on the surface of it, it looks like potentially breakthrough technology potentially breakthrough technology to help extract the pure hydrogen at the other end. Now you can see the technology in use. That's a Hyundai truck. That's a uh, company called Nikola in America making hydrogen truck. That truck can drive nearly 2,000 kilometres with a full load. Then 15 minutes to refill and it can continue. I don't know what they do about drivers, but the truck can keep going. <laughs> That's a train made by, in France and in regular public service. It's a hydrogen train with tanks on the roof, in regular public service in Germany. That's a Hyundai bus. And the next one, if it comes up, is a Honda Clarity. That's me in Japan refueling it last year. It's happening. Countries are ahead of us. We will close the gap, but countries are ahead of us. And that's an artist's concept of a plane that might run on hydrogen. Aviation is the toughest thing when it comes to coming up with a zero emissions alternative. Maybe, maybe hydrogen will be part of the solution. Um, what will success look like for Australia in 2030? Four things. We expect to be one of the top three exporters to, this is what the strategy says, adopted by the ministers. I personally want us to be number one, but we're committing to th top three. We'll have an excellent safety record. We'll have economic <laughs> benefits for all. And this international provenance scheme will be in place. Because actually, I don't think that the international trade of hydrogen will be effective without that. OK, almost done. We've handed in the strategy. It's been adopted by government. We don't want to lose momentum. At least the short term, the working group that did the work to produce the strategy is going to continue. So I'll stay on its chair, Alison Reeve is the task force lead, and the ministers are working on what the most effective long-term process of governance will be to ensure that we do not lose the momentum of what we're doing. Everybody wants to know what are the first steps? We're still working them out. Definitely we're already in touch with international counterparts to start developing this international provenance scheme. 
one of the limitations of using hydrogen in the gas networks are the existing gas laws never contemplated hydrogen. The definition of gas in each state's definition of uh, legal system does not include hydrogen, so that's all got to be reviewed. And there are about 730 pieces of legislation that are potentially affected and about 110, 110 standards that are potentially affected. It won't be all of them, but there's a lot. And finally, it's to make sure that we activate the market by ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation using their financial muscle to help investors. And I have to applaud the states and their territories for the effort that they are doing as well. So just to summarise, what have we seen here? Three important uses of hydrogen, clean energy dense fuel, industrial chemical, and an energy carrier for shipping sunshine around the world the planet. The technology is there to get started, but we need to improve the efficiency and the cost effectiveness, so a lot of ongoing work on that. It's all about not only emissions reductions, but economic uh, growth and jobs, but it's up to us. It won't happen unless we dive in, carpe diem, seize the day. May the force be with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Alan, for a truly inspiring uh, presentation and really giving us a vision of where hydrogen can be can go in the future. I'd like to congratulate you in particular on getting the ministers around the country to agree on anything, uh, which is, I think, a, a really, really major step. Um, and I'd also like to congratulate you on putting up with a really dodgy PowerPoint system, uh, which must have been just about as challenging <laughs> as dealing with those ministers. Uh, we're going to continue our presentation now. For those who don't, of you who don't know me, my name's Sandra Kentish, and I'm now going to lead a panel session where we'll try and uh, probe a little more deeply into this vision. Uh, so I'd like to invite Alan up to the stage, uh, but also to accompany him, uh, Tony Wood, uh, who is, uh, as it says there, the Energy Program Director of the Grattan Institute, and also Professor Paul Webley, who is the Hydrogen and Clean Energy Fuels Program Leader. So we're going to have a bit of a Q&A amongst the panel for about 15, 20 minutes, and then we will be opening it up to the general public. So please have your questions ready, but uh, not just yet. Okay, uh, so let me start by asking perhaps Tony to lead off uh, and perhaps respond to uh, Alan's presentation and give us your own observations on what's been presented tonight. Well, I think that almost the comment you made, Sandra, was um, the thing that almost impressed me the most was that for a, um, a council of ministers who had such a bad time a year ago, they didn't even meet for another 12 months, despite the fact they're supposed to meet at least twice a year, to actually come out of a meeting and agree on stuff. And not only did Alan get him to agree on the hydrogen strategy, he also got him to agree on not fighting about a whole lot of other stuff as well. So that was an extraordinary outcome. So congratulations for that. Um, I, look at, I guess this, for me, the interesting thing is this, on the strategy. When you, and you mentioned LNG, and we've seen other technologies that had, I can remember in 2007, Prime Minister to be Kevin Rudd talking about geothermal energy was going to be the great saviour and we, many of us would know how that turned out. So I'm interested in the, in the practical steps of where this now goes because when I look at the document as a framework, um, when I first look at it, I say, well, of course they agree to it. There's not very little you could disagree with. In some ways, you could say, well, that's a bit, does that mean there's nothing in there? Well, actually not. What it means is that it's been, I think, well-crafted 
to get people on board. Because if you'd put in a whole lot of specific things that they had to do, recommendation, and say, well, you probably would have lost some of them. And that would have been harder. So that, from that side, I think it's good. The other side of it, of course, is now, how do you turn this into real action? And we've seen in things like LNG exports how things can go badly wrong. People, there's many people who would say, we stuffed that up. Yes, we got those numbers, but as a consequence, we're other issues have emerged. So how we think about that will be important. So when we think about this, Alan, I guess I'm interested in, when you look at the initiatives and the, and the actions, and many of the actions, if anyone reads them, would say they're actions to take action. They're actions to support things that haven't been designed yet. They're actions to um, support uh, different technologies. So I'm interested a little bit in, now, now you've got your uh, commitment to move forward and stay involved. Uh, it seems to me that Bringing this together is going to, what you've done, you will look back and say, that was the easy bit. The hard bit is going to turn this into something that actually works because the, two of the, two of the, I'll give you an example, two of the actions. One says, um, the states will agree to work together on this. Another one says, the states will recognise that all the states can do their own thing. Now, those two would seem to be potentially inconsistent. The states are doing a number of things. How the hell do you get that coordinated when you're looking at a national approach? And how do we start, where do we focus what actually is a relatively small amount of public funding? Because I guess the expectation would be that overwhelmingly the funding will come from investors in a sector which is going to give them real profits and they're going to deliver real products to real consumers. So where do you focus? And that's what I'd like to get your response to is to when you look at all the things in there, there's 57 actions, there's 10, 10 priority areas. Now, I can't prioritise more than one or two things. A priority, 10 priorities is hard. How do you make sure that we actually start putting some real stuff on the ground that without um, uncoordinated action to start to move this, this thing forward? And so do we focus on things that are important to Australia, like energy efficient, uh, the really hard to decarbonise heavy industries like the uh, energy intensive manufacturing you mentioned? Or do we in Australia, are we one of the ones who has to think about, does hydrogen have a role you didn't mention, which is things like seasonal storage and flexibility in the electricity sector? Is that going to be something we should be focusing on? Because this is not about technology now. This is going to be about driving down costs and economics. So that's where I'm interested in how that plays out. Was there a question in there? I think there, there was. <laughs> I want to know specifically what are the, what are the tangible things okay. we're going to do? So, so the essence of what we've got, as I said, is not a roadmap. It's, it's really to make it easy for the existing enthusiasm to manifest itself efficiently. It's, there's a reason why some of the agreed actions say the states will agree to do this, and in other cases they're going to go their own way because there is no single approach for everything. It's... There is no intention in that strategy for uniformity. The intention is states should be able to compete to um, be predominant in export markets and work with their local industries and take advantage of their resources in a healthy fashion. You know, healthy economic competition is worth them pursuing. But in order for them to do that efficiently, you want to make sure that we do have national training on, sorry, national standards on safety and national standings on uh, training, national standards on training expectations. You want to make sure that uh, the laws of the various states don't prevent hydrogen from being transported across state borders. So a lot of things have to be 
removed and some things have to be implemented. But the actual goal is to make it easy for uh, companies, investors and states to do their thing. Will it be effective? I think it's already kicking some goals. The fact that the Commonwealth Government has put aside $370 million for future hydrogen stimulus funding is terrific. The fact that New South Wales has already set a goal for blending uh, hydrogen into their networks is terrific. Would they have done that without the National Hydrogen Strategy? I don't think they would have. Um, they would have continued to do little piecemeal things. So we've got to recognise that we are a commonwealth. It's very difficult to get nine jurisdictions to agree on a single investment of any kind. So where Japan can have hard targets, Japan's got, their, their strategy is driven by targets. Their strategy has got targets of 300,000 tonnes to be imported in 2030 and between 5 and 10 million tonnes to be imported in 2050. And I can't remember exactly, but 60,000 cars or thereabouts on the road by 2030 or more and 350 refuelling stations, etc. We want to make sure that if a state wants to work in a, and set up a consortium of industry to put in 10, 15 or 20 refuelling stations, that the regulations are such that it can be done economically because currently, because no one really knows what the safety profile is in Australia for our conditions, you end up doing experimental installations with enormous setbacks because you're just not sure. And if that's going to be in a downtown circumstance situation, just the land area use makes the Bowser expensive. So there's a lot that we can do to facilitate investors getting into the market. But we can also, at the national level, work bilaterally with other countries to test the supply chain so that when investors come in and try to do it at, at scale, we've solved problems. For example, currently under the International Maritime Organisation Shipping Regulations, you can't ship liquefied hydrogen in bulk. But for the project that's going on in Victoria, there's a special exception that they've negotiated with the IMO, but we will have to work with other countries to resolve that. There's just many things that the strategy is pointing to that will facilitate, but it's not actually saying either that these are hard targets that we have to co-invest in, nor that there has to be nationally coordinated action across everything that needs to be done. You, know, you, you hear people talking about collaboration as being the most important thing to get successful delivery of research and everything else, but never forget about the importance of competition. And so we're probably at the collaborate to compete stage of the industry, you know, pre-competitive collaboration, but eventually the states quite rightly and companies quite rightly should be doing what they can to win the economic battle. And as we've seen with LNG, multiple states can do very, very well. Every state uh, in Australia with the, and territory, say with the exception of the ACT, has the ability to be a producer, a large-scale producer. Even Tasmania, which you don't think of as solar and wind, it's got phenomenal hydroelectric resources. Paul, have you got any general observations you want to make? Or? I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I do have some observations to make. I think the... Um, you know, if you, if you compare this to other industries, the solar industry, the wind industry, what's different here is we have a, a dawn of an industry where we're not, we have multiple uses of the product. With solar and with wind, you're making electricity, you're putting into the grid. 
Uh, with hydrogen, I think a lot of the, um, the uncertainty is around the use. And this is for the first time really a technology where we have to put a lot of effort into understanding the use of the hydrogen. The generation is fairly mature. Um, and, and the transport, to some extent, is mature. But the, the actual use of it, what do we use it for? And I think in terms of market activation, that's going to be a, a critical component. Uh, if we do want to build a hub tomorrow, what do we use the hydrogen for? You, you indicated in your talk a lot of the discussions, everyone wants to make it. What are we going to do with it? Uh, do we put it into the grid? Uh, what's the tomorrow use of hydrogen? I think you indicated the transport is probably one of the closest uses right now where we've got some economic potential. To, to get a, a, a market going, an activated market going. And I think that's really, to me, is the key. Uh, and the R&D is going to be playing into the space of the D, I think. If we want to activate the market, we, uh, we need to really work on what, is, what does a hub look like? Uh, what are, the, uh, what are the, the economics of that? What does the system integration look like? That's very much the D rather than the R. And I think that's to get the market activated. That's where we'll have to play. And, and I think that's reflected in your, in your strategy. Mm -hmm. So um, can I just yeah, comment on, on, yeah, yeah, on yeah, uses? Yeah, yeah. Um, so objectively, transport, transport mm. big trucks, trains, and ships would be a cost-effective, very quickly a cost-effective place to be using hydrogen in Australia. We have a problem that's getting the vehicles here mm. um, because we've got different uh, design rules. And so you can't just bring a truck that's been made in America and use it here, even if you do the left-hand drive conversion. Uh, the quickest way for us to build some scale in domestic use will be through gas blending. Absolutely safe. And um, if you do it across all the states, it does become a significant volume of hydrogen that's being produced and used, even at the 10% blending level. But the other sorts of uses, I mentioned steel making in industry, but Hydrogen is the key ingredient in ammonia. Ammonia is made from nitrogen from the atmosphere and hydrogen, and they've been doing that for 110 years, but hydrogen that's not clean. Hydrogen is made with a lot of carbon dioxide emissions. I don't know, but if you go with the past inclinations of European countries, I would not be surprised if some number of years from now there'll be a growing demand or even some legislative requirement for clean fertiliser that's made from clean ammonia. I mean, ammonia is used to, the, the ammonia is used to make fertiliser, explosives, and a little bit in uh, plastic chemicals. Clean explosives doesn't really appeal to me as a, as a phrase, <laughs> but the biggest use of ammonia is making fertiliser. And that is a potentially huge value-add that we could do in this country for export to... European countries, perhaps initially, and others. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do, but it's not going to be tomorrow. Gas blending can start tomorrow. I guess that Give it to me a year, but the yeah, other ones yeah. will take longer. I think you already know what I'm about to say next, and that is my first job in the energy industry was taking hydrogen out of the gas network. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So want, really, it's worth elaborating so on that. Putting it back in again is a bit of a trick because the gas industry in this country, like many other parts of the world, is a very old one. It preceded electricity in a sense. And it was all made from coal, coal gas or town's gas. And there's a few people around here who would even remember that. Um, but then, of course, we moved to natural gas. And in many parts of the country, we moved quite quickly. In parts of Queensland, where I grew up, and this is not a reflection on Queenslanders, um, we did it last. 
And my first job in, in Brisbane was to, in fact, take the... And coal gas, hydrogen gas, uh, coal gas, town's gas, was, made, was hydrogen and carbon monoxide. You could convert to... So what we did convert to natural gas. So we had to take hydrogen and carbon monoxide out of the gas network, put natural gas in, which meant reversing what we were doing. Because we had to go and convert every single burner in every house and every business in, 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 Queen, in Brisbane to different uh, form of energy. So we'll have to just reverse the whole process. And I, I guess one of the questions I've got is that seems like a harder one to me because that, you know, it's not obvious to me yet that that's going to be the most cost-effective way to use hydrogen when you think about, well, why don't we just go to electricity for all those purposes and focus on those things where hydrogen would be very different, like those heavy industry you mentioned, like steel, like, like uh, fertilisers and so forth, um, because I, it seems to me that's where you're going to get the biggest... Um, outcome, I won't say bang, um, biggest outcome from your input. So that's, that's where I'm intrigued as to where you'd put that, what is already a relatively small amount of money to start with. Yeah. So um, if we want to decarbonise or other countries want to decarbonise, a big sector that has to be decarbonised, like 18 to 20% of all emissions comes from what's called direct combustion, just using natural gas primarily, to heat things up, buildings, water, industrial heating, etc. Um, and people have actually done some studies to say, okay, the alternative to replacing the natural gas with hydrogen is just to close down the gas networks, the distribution networks, and do electrification as the substitution. But it's expensive in existing suburbs. It's probably cost-effective, definitely cost-effective in new housing and new subdivisions. But the building stock has, you know, about a 100-year turnover cycle. You only get about 1% turnover of houses per year. So if you want to take a 100 years to do it, you could do that, but then you've got to be maintaining two systems in parallel for all of that time. Studies have shown that... They need to do more detailed study that using the existing pipelines and the existing pipelines are suitable for 100% hydrogen. That's an important thing to keep in mind because if you had to rip up the pipelines in the cities, that would be a huge problem. They are suitable. Using the existing pipelines and modifying the appliances in homes is likely to be significantly cheaper than shutting down the gas distribution network, removing those appliances and putting in new electricity distribution and new electricity appliances. So... People will have to do the studies on a case-by-case -case basis to decide what the best approach forward is. Electric, electrification as a substitution or hydrogen substitution. But so far, the preliminary studies show that hydrogen substitution is significantly cheaper than electricity substitution. Uh, perhaps, Paul, we could give this a Victorian context too. Mm, Alan yeah. mentioned the hydrogen energy supply chain project and, of course, that's involving taking brown coal and converting it into mm. hydrogen and also involves CCS. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about that project and the role that CCS plays in this context. Sure. So, so for those of you that are not, uh, not aware or not familiar with the project, the hydrogen energy supply chain project is a project in the Latrobe Valley to convert brown coal to hydrogen through a process called gasification, and then to capture the CO2 that's uh, uh, generated in the process and uh, safely store that in a process called carbon capture and storage, um, uh, which is a, in a site very close to where the, in the, in the Latrobe Valley. So um, the, the process of carbon capture and storage is, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a technology which is agnostic to the source of 
the gas. So it doesn't matter whether it's CO2 coming from a, a, um, an ethanol plant, CO2 coming from a coal plant, CO2 coming from the air. You can capture CO2 from the air. Uh, CCS is a technology just for capturing the CO2 and, and safely sequestering it underground. And so the HESC project is a, a large-scale project. Currently, it's in the pilot stage um, for... Uh, presumably down the line, a commercial scale for producing on a very large scale hydrogen for a, a liquefaction and then export to, to um, Japan. So I think the, the, uh, the attraction of it is the scalability. So clearly it's something that we can do uh, in, in within the next five to ten years on a large scale and satisfy the very large demand that, chi that Japan will have for, for hydrogen. So that's the key attraction. Of course it's got the angle of, of CCS, so you've got to do the CO2 capture and you've got to make sure that that's all proven. But uh, currently, we have that technology available. Uh, it's being, as I mentioned, it's being piloted uh, at a fairly small scale uh, to make sure we have all the pieces in place, the generation, the gasification, the transport, the liquefaction, the loading. Alan mentioned the ship going all the way to Japan uh, and the unloading. So all those pieces in the puzzle are being demonstrated uh, effectively as we speak. So uh, that's a, a pretty exciting project, and uh, hopefully that's the first sort of steps for a, a major export industry. Okay. Yeah. So I think we are going to open it up now to some uh, questions from the audience. Um, and I've, we've got two microphones roaming around. Uh, so we're just going to pick, some, <laughs> pick the closest person you can on this side. Uh, and then if the other microphone could find somebody on that side for the next question. Yeah. Hello, uh, my name's Kate. First up, thank you. So refreshing to have a vision of where we're going on a topic. Um, my question's actually about the water input. In terms of the scale of the aspiration with this, when does that become a constraint or if it does, it, does it become a constraint? When does it become a constraint? Yeah. Um, so on that more aggressive or optimistic scenario, uh, by 2050, the water use would be considerable, but less than half of the water that's currently used by the Australian mining industry. The problem is therefore not so much just do we have enough water, I think we do, but it's the distribution. And if you're doing hydrogen production uh, in an agricultural region and wanting to use water that was otherwise destined to be used in agriculture, that's a problem. Uh, or if your best solar and wind that you found in your particular state happens to be in a desert area and there's no artesian water, and there's certainly no rivers or creeks, uh, that's a problem too. So it's distribution. There are three viable sources of water. There's fresh water, such as would otherwise be used for agriculture or, or towns or uh, cities, if it's available. And really, coming in as a new industry, you can't expect to have a right to that. So the existing local water use is going to be uh, prevalent every time. So if there's fresh water available, fantastic. Uh, wastewater, water has to be purified before it goes into the electrolysis unit. So whether it's tap water, it still has to be deionized so that it's almost distilled water. You can start with wastewater. It's not that difficult to purify it using reverse osmosis. But really, desalination of water is quite cost-effective. So I talked about hydrogen needing to be as low as $12 at the retail, I'll call it a petrol pump, but it's a hydrogen refueling station in order to be competitive with petrol. 
It needs to be way down from that, like a dollar twenty, a tenth of that in the long term, a dollar twenty to compete with natural gas in bulk going into Japan and Korea and Germany and other countries. If you were to make the water that you need by desalination using today's prices, it adds less than two cents, less than two cents to the price of the hydrogen. It's stunningly low. Then you come run into engineering issues. Okay, if your solar and wind is 400 kilometres from the coast, do you take the electricity to the coast and do everything there? Or do you desalinate the water at the coast and pump the water inland 400 kilometres? And that is a project-by-project project analysis. So at the end of the day, desalination is the saviour. But of course, with community permission or government permission, developers would use whatever is the most cost-effective solution. So it's a significant issue. It can never be trivialised, but it's solvable. Okay, I think the microphone's gone over. Yes, uh, Willem O'Dake from the Genie Foundation. My question is basically along the same lines. Um, I only see downside for the availability of water and therefore price of water is going to go up. It's great to hear that you could use desalination, but have you extrapolated that possibility that water becomes a, I don't know, uh, a hard-to-come-by resource? Well, desalination um, has not necessarily been done well in some of the examples you might have seen around. But as we go forward, it'll become cleaner and more cost-effective because the main, there are only two inputs to desalination, the seawater that's coming in and the electricity that runs the process. There's replacement of membranes, but that's the two variables. And as renewable electricity gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, What's currently two cents will become one and a half cents or one cent. So I don't see any practical uh, reasons to be concerned about the ability to scale up desalination to whatever level that we need. Uh, There's a question over here. Uh, thanks very much, Alan, for all your work in this field. It's really inspirational. Roger Dargaville from Monash University. Uh, as you said uh, or alluded to, Australia has a fantastic advantage in terms of our renewable resources, but we have a big disadvantage that we're a long way from most of the big markets. Have you compared what it would cost to supply hydrogen from other good renewable locations around the world, such as the Gobi Desert in China or, or Saudi Arabia for its solar uh, resources, which are much closer to the, the big markets? So are the trade-offs between the quality of the resources in Australia good enough to offset the costs of getting the hydrogen to those markets compared to the alternatives? So it's always a problem for us, whether we're shipping wool, agricultural produce, or iron ore, or coal. Um, that's part of the reason why we're the preferred supplier to much of Asia in many of our exports. But shipping is not, it's, it's more time. It's, it's not a big cost in most exports, but it is a concern. So you'd think that the European markets would be likely, and they might, get their hydrogen from Morocco, Algeria, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, who can also use solar electricity and desalination of seawater. But the reality is Australia has been extraordinarily successful in some of these markets, despite the disadvantages. There's another disadvantage we have compared to other countries, and that's our salary structure. The salaries that people are working in Western Australia and Northern Territory and the fly-in, fly-out um, uh, employment scenario are stunningly high. And yet, 
on iron ore, there's daylight between us as number one and the number two country. We're at about 50 or 51%. We are at the 51% level, the largest uh, exporter of iron ore. And Brazil's, I think, 22 or 23%. We've got distance against us. We've got salary structures against us. We've got the fact that we have very stringent regulatory requirements for safety and environmental impact, and yet we do it really well. The resource companies have been using technology and innovation amazingly effectively. You know, if you go out to Western Australia and you see how they can run their mines from a control centre, like a NASA control centre in Perth, um, with autonomous vehicles and remotely controlled drilling machines. We've proven our cap capacity to do that. And European countries recognise that. They also uh, trust our political stability. You might not see it, but from outside, we're pretty, <laughs> we're, we're pretty stable. And we had a delegation from Germany here a couple of months ago saying they want to work with Australia to build up the supply chain in hydrogen. We're a long way from Germany much easier for them to get it across the Mediterranean. And they probably will, but they still see enormous value in building up Australia as at least part of their supply. And of course, for uh, Japan and Korea, it makes a lot of sense for them to purchase from us. Um, and thank you, Roger, for giving your affiliation. Can I also get speakers, if they are affiliated with an organisation, <coughs> to give their name and affiliation before they ask their question, please? Yep. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks. I'm not affiliated with anyone, just a <laughs> private citizen. Right. Uh, congratulations on the, on the strategy. I think it's a great start. There's no mention of methanation uh, in the strategy and, uh, and the potential for negative CO2 emissions using atmospheric carbon uh, combining with hydrogen to, to create methane. And obviously there's the opportunity then to, to go 100% with that product into the grid, into the gas grid, and, and also uh, uh, into the future using that methane as a feedstock for the production of uh, high-value product like carbon fibre and so on. Um, it was called the National Hydrogen Strategy, <laughs> not the National Methanation Strategy. Um, but you're right, and that, you know, one, our low scenario is where hydrogen loses out to other technologies. We call it electric breakthrough, but as you pointed out, it could be something else. So in principle, um, and, and hydrogen will be involved, um, you can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, combine it with clean hydrogen, and make methane which is natural gas, and use that in the pipes. But at the moment, that would be prohibitively expensive compared to doing hydrogen substitution directly. The cost of electricity to run the fans, to draw the air across the collectors to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is, is not trivial. There's only one um, molecule of carbon dioxide per 2,500 molecules of everything else in the air. So it's a, you know, even though we worry about it, it's a greenhouse gas at those low concentrations. It is a very low concentration. So you have to pump the mass of 2,500 nitrogen and oxygen and argon molecules to bring one carbon dioxide membrane uh, molecule up to the membrane. So it's just not there yet or I think realistically going to make a contribution at the same rate that hydrogen can. But it's, it's definitely a feasible technology pathway going forward. The equivalent is to use the clean hydrogen with nitrogen, which is abundant in the air, to make ammonia. And that can be used for many things I mentioned to make fertiliser, but it can also be used to transport the 
hydrogen to another country and then use that CSIRO or other technologies to remove the hydrogen. But you can also burn ammonia. It's not the best fuel in the world, but and set, you wouldn't use it in cars and you wouldn't use it in homes. It's very, very toxic. But in well-controlled, large central locations, you can burn ammonia. And that is possibly the most cost-effective way of doing large-scale energy use of hydrogen in other countries. Uh, uh, Tom Fricke, uh, Alan. Um, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of activity at the moment on electrifying uh, motor vehicle fleets uh, to replace petrol with electrification. But, of course, that brings the, uh, a number of issues, not the least of which is we'll have to generate twice as much electricity if we electrify all our motor vehicle fleet, for example. So I was wondering whether in your analysis of hydrogen as a transport fuel, is there potential is the potential for hydrogen to actually... Uh, power all our motor vehicles, uh, emissions free, and probably with a better range, I don't know about the range of the vehicles, you might comment on that, but is there the potential for hydrogen to actually obviate the, the, the need to electrify, uh, say, our motor vehicle fleet, and will be hydrogen-powered motor vehicles? Did you look at that in your study and compare hydrogen-powered motor vehicles versus electrically-powered motor vehicles? So the answer is, in principle, you can use hydrogen in every category of vehicle. A couple of things that I need to point out. Think about a petrol vehicle. It's an internal combustion engine. The carburetor or the injectors vaporise the petrol. You have the vapour going into the cylinders. Bang, bang, bang. That's where you get your um, thrust from. If you make a natural gas car, it's still an internal combustion engine. You could, in principle, take hydrogen and run an internal combustion engine, but nobody does. Because it's more efficient to take the hydrogen through a fuel cell, that device that I showed you, and turn it into electricity. So all the hydrogen vehicles we're talking about, whether they're ships or trains or cars or trucks, are actually electric vehicles. They're correctly called FCEV, a fuel cell electric vehicle. Just like the other type is a BEV, a battery electric vehicle. You have to use electricity, so you can do that. But does it help you in terms of the requirement for electricity generation? Not at all. In fact, the inverse, because you have to use electricity if you're doing it as a renewable approach to make the hydrogen. If you're doing it a fossil fuel pathway, that's different. We can come to that. But if you're using renewable electricity, you have to use a lot of electricity to crack the water, and you actually need more electricity to make the hydrogen to drive a certain distance than you would need electricity to charge a battery to drive a battery electric vehicle. But I wouldn't worry about making more electricity. This is the solution to emissions reduction going forward. We have to first, across the planet, replace existing electricity generation with clean sources. In Australia, that'll be solar and wind and hydro. In some countries, it'll be nuclear as well. We have to replace the existing electricity generation with zero emission sources. And then we have to quadruple it or quintuple it or even more so that we can replace oil, coal and gas for all the other uses that they've got. Investors love it. Industrialists love it. It's an opportunity to build new industries and it will become more and more cost effective as the scale goes up. You know, every time it doubles, the prices come down by a factor of two or more. You're still on a roll? You can keep you going. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another question here. Okay, thank you. Um, 
the I read somewhere that of the 370 million allocated by the federal government towards the research or beginnings of research into um, the production of hydrogen, the majority of it is going towards um, using it from coal. So Canavan, I think, and uh, Taylor have got together and said, right, that's the, the largest part of the grant. Uh, does it matter? 370 million is not a lot, but that's taking it from a not a clean source. It's a dirty source rather than putting the money into a clean yeah. source. And is that correct? And uh, also, it, is it a problem? It's certainly not my understanding. So the $370 million splits as follows. Two categories. $70 million that will be managed by ARENA, and ARENA can only invest in renewables. That's 70. The other 300 will go through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, usually referred to as the CEFC. They can invest in renewable technologies, efficiency, energy efficiency, or housing efficiency, and all sorts of things like that. And they can uh, invest in fossil fuel technologies, but only if the technology they're investing in improves by a factor of two the emissions compared to best case in that area, okay? So if somebody came to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and said, we want you to co-invest with us in a steam methane reforming plant, which is the standard way that hydrogen has been made in the past, in a steam methane reforming plant to make hydrogen. They'd say, okay, but how are you going to reduce by at least a factor of two the carbon dioxide emissions compared to the current best practice. And the only way that I can conceive of, and Paul can comment on this, the only way that I can conceive of is to use substantial carbon capture and storage. But under the legislation for the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, they're excluded from two things, nuclear and carbon capture and storage. <laughs> so I cannot see how any of that $300 million under the current legislation, anything can change, but under the current legislation can be used to invest in fossil fuel production of hydrogen. There might be ways to get around that, but it's not obvious to me. So I can't say no, but it's not obvious yeah. that it would. Paul, would you I have think, anything to that, that? I think that's absolutely correct, yep. Uh, in the current, the way it's, 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 it's written, uh, my impression is that whole 370 is, is non-fossil fuel related. Yeah. I think there's a point here, and you may have read, there was an article in the Saturday paper which talked about this issue. There are a number of factual errors in that paper, and I'm not here, I'm not in any way saying the CCS is the answer, but there were some errors, and one of them was to suggest that we're putting all this money into that project that Paul mentioned, which is the, the one that was being referred to. The $500 million that's going into that project, $50 million is coming from the Commonwealth and $50 million is coming from the state government of Victoria. The rest is coming from private sectors, most Japanese investors and other consortium. None of that's got anything to do with the 370 hours talking about. It's completely separate. Okay, I'm going to allow two, two more questions and I'm just warning, I'm going to give the panel the opportunity to make any closing remarks, so they might want to think about that. Uh, so, yeah, we have one question here and then we'll choose one more and that'll be it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, we already produce hydrogen to make ammonia for fertiliser, so presumably we'll need to increase our the amount of hydrogen gas we produce. What changes in technology would be required to make that more efficient and are they possible? 
Anybody else? Sure. No, you go first. Um, so you're right. We produce, uh, I think, 350,000 tonnes of hydrogen a year in Australia to make ammonia. And all of that is made the traditional way, um, which is steam methane reforming. Methane, natural gas, it's a process. <clears throat> and there is substantial carbon dioxide emissions uh, from doing that. And that's pretty much the case around the world. The goal going forward is to be producing clean hydrogen for a whole lot of new uses, but also eventually to be replacing the so-called, I guess, dirty hydrogen with clean hydrogen. Um, it would take a little bit of encouragement to get an existing producer to go through the added costs to do that. But with time in countries around the world, it will become a regulatory requirement that they will have to do that. So most of the excitement about hydrogen is the massive increase in hydrogen that will be used beyond the, that will happen beyond the current use, all of which has to be clean, however it's made, and eventually the replacement of the existing hydrogen. And I say clean, so when I talk about clean hydrogen, I mean clean in the sense that there was minimal, literally you know, negligible production of carbon dioxide in the um, production of the hydrogen itself. We were asked in the terms of reference to be technology neutral, and we are, but that doesn't mean we're technology negligent. The strategy says that if it's a fossil fuel pathway, it has to be accompanied by substantial, the word's there, substantial carbon capture and storage, and if you link back to other parts of the strategy, that's in the vicinity of 90%. And Paul can comment about whether that's achievable, and the answer is is yes. Um, and if you want, <laughs> <laughs> Paul can say the same thing. Go on, Paul, speak. Well, we're leaving it's, that. It's, oh, it's absolutely achievable. Um, the, the, the level that you want to capture at is whatever you design the plant to capture at. Yeah. And uh, economics decides. I'll leave it at that. I've got. I think we've got one more question up at the back here. Yeah, just um, uh, we've been talking a lot about production of hydrogen, but to flip the flip the coin and sort of look at the waste, and ostensibly the product of you know, the waste product is water. But how does the strategy con uh, contemplate um, waste product from hydrogen-related industries? So I'm thinking about say some of the the challenges that say the solar industry is about to run into with. Uh, uh, photoelectric panels and how that they'll be disposed of in the coming years. I'm struggling to hear it. That's uh, how do you deal with the waste product from a coal pathway or a no? No, from, sorry, this is from from any from, from the hydrogen more broadly. So obviously, ostensibly, the the product of the waste product is water, but uh, you know, there's there's obviously technology related to the production of hydrogen and the use of hydrogen. So I mean, how's the strategy contemplated I mean, uh, waste Recycling and, and, and mineral and um, uh, all sorts of material content is a huge issue. So as we scale up solar and wind, the amount of nickel and copper and silicon and everything else that we have to mine and use and somehow recycle is a massive challenge. But... It's one that we can contemplate and efficiently do um, if there are appropriate regulations in place. It's no different for hydrogen on the renewable pathway than anything else. I mean, hydrogen itself has no waste products to worry about. Uh, water vapour is not a waste product. If you, when you burn natural gas today, people don't normally realise this. When you burn natural gas, there are three things that you get. The first is the heat that you want. The second is a lot of water vapour. 
but you don't see it. There's water vapour. You turn on your stove to cook spaghetti. There's water vapour coming off that flame all the time, but you don't see it because water vapour is absolutely colourless, transparent. There's not enough for it to condense on windows. It's just not an issue. The third thing you get is carbon dioxide. When you burn hydrogen, you get the same first two. You get the heat that you want. You get water vapour, a little bit more, but not much, but you don't get any carbon dioxide. So there's no problem in terms of the hydrogen itself. The only problems are production-related. If you're using wind turbines, they've got huge quantities of copper, steel, and aluminium. And after, after 25 years, if it's broken down and collapsing, how do you recycle that? Well, we know how to recycle it. It's just a question of can it be done cost-effectively. Did I, I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I tried. Although I'd bring up the other waste product you alluded to briefly was oxygen during the process. Mm. Um, is there anything two, we can... Two, two things I can say to give you comfort. Three. First of all, oxygen is a good thing. I like it a lot. The second is it's inconceivable that we could ever have a hydrogen industry so big that you would be, get a significant percentage change because unlike carbon dioxide, where you're adding to a very, very small quantity in the atmosphere, oxygen is already 21% or thereabouts of the atmosphere, so it's inconceivable. But the third thing is a complete saving grace if it's a renewable pathway. If you generate 243 gazillion molecules of oxygen <coughs> during the production of the hydrogen, when that hydrogen is used, it's combusting with oxygen, and the same 243 gazillion molecules of oxygen will be used up and turned back into the same amount of water that you use to make the hydrogen. It's a completely closed system. The only thing sacrificed are the photons that come from the sun and hit the panel to make the electricity. And if you didn't have the panel there, they would hit the ground and died in vain. So it really is, it really is a nice system. Okay, I'm just going to give the opportunity for our panels to, to just give one quote. I think you've probably had... That's, yeah, I've had, had the last word. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul, do you have any other last comments Look, you'd like I, to I, make? I think, I think it's... it's uh, I want to commend Alan on the strategy. I think it's been a fantastic journey. I've sort of been peripherally involved in it here and there. And I think it's a fantastic starting point. It is only just a starting point. Um, it's a, it's a, a fantastic journey for us to go on. Uh, it would be negligent of us if we sat here in 10 years' time and we've, and we've let it slip by and we've had all these wonderful discussions and we've, we've activated things and then we look back and we say, well, boy, uh, you know, China took over the hydrogen market again or Europe took it over and we're, we're followers again. So we, we really have to get cracking in, in projects now and, and build on this momentum. Tony? I guess to reinforce that, I mean, it seems to me that... Um, and it's interesting to connect this with um, presentations that many of you already may have been to in the last few weeks with Ross Garno talking about his book Superpower because there's clearly some consistencies here in relation to how this works. And whether we, we export the hydrogen or whether we make stuff from the solar energy at home and then export that, there's big opportunities here. We're pretty good at stuff, as, as Ross sometimes says, mucking it up. Um, <laughs> So the challenge ahead is to not muck it up this time. We've seen a number of, um, you know, I think some of the things, some of the things that happened with LNG illustrate that. Some of our attempts, for example, to put natural gas into vehicles, we stuffed up. I mean, we did do pretty well with LPG for many, many years. So we do, we know how to do it well. We know how to do it badly. I think the really interesting challenge is to turn what is an extraordinary vision and statement of opportunity that Alan's laid out in the strategy that's been endorsed by ministers 
into something that doesn't just get lost in the political space and we find this all slipped through our fingers. The real challenge now, Alan, is not just to take it to the next step, but then to set the structure up so that it goes forward from there. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. And any last? Thank you. Be ambitious. Be patient. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Um, in closing, I'd also like, like to thank all of our speakers, Professor Paul Wedley, Tony Wood, Alan Finkel, and also a big thank you to, your, to the audience itself, particularly for asking some really nice questions and relevant questions. Uh, so thank you all uh, for a very interesting, entertaining evening. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. 